So in the movie X-Men, there is this character named Mystique here played by Jennifer Lawrence, and she is this mutant that has this superpower. You're going to get to see some of what she can do. She can change into any person that she wants to be. And there are many times in the course of these movies that you are tricked. Suddenly, you think it's one person, and then the scene changes, and you realize, oh, that wasn't that person. It actually was Mystique. This summer, we were introduced to another character who has a different set of identities, Luca. If you haven't seen this yet, I want to recommend it for all ages, I'm happy to say. Luca is a sea monster on the right, and he discovers one day, I'm not giving anything away, that when he comes out of the water, he becomes an ordinary boy. And Luca loves being an ordinary boy and getting to do things like ride a moped and bicycle and just play with two feet. Luca knows that if people were to find out on land that he was a monster, that they would soon turn and be afraid of him. And so the whole movie is this like suspense of making sure that his secret is kept hidden. So Mystique and Luca, they're, they're fictional characters, they're magical characters. They challenge the viewer though to consider what is someone's true identity? When you look at somebody, who are they really? Last week we began this three-week sermon series called Welcome All. We started with Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus and we saw that a fundamental problem that this church was dealing with is that when they looked at each other, they actually all looked very different. They were different from different religious backgrounds. They had different economic backgrounds and they are getting caught up in the things that divide them as opposed to the one thing that they do have in common and that is that they are united in Christ. And time after time over the course of Jesus' ministry, we see that he is questioning this, this fact that we identify people so different. He constantly is calling to question, why are certain people, whether because of their nationality, whether because of their profession or their gender, their mental state or maybe a disability they have, why are they labeled? Why are they excluded? Why are they put into certain camps where they are not allowed. And this is the thing, as followers of Jesus, each of us are called to live our lives as Jesus did, and those are the people that Jesus sought out to be in relationship with. The ones that were excluded, the ones that were labeled, the ones that were on the margins, the cast off, the ones that when you approach, you might have to have an awkward conversation. To help us look deeper, at how Jesus is encouraging all of us to welcome all, we are going to listen to a parable. And it's kind of almost like a Mystique Luca Disney version in the first century. Our story today, it occurs two days before a Passover meal, and it's not just any Passover meal, it is the last Passover meal before Jesus dies. And Jesus is concerned about making sure that those disciples really get what it means 
that he's going to die and that he's going to rise again and then one day he's going to come back. And so he tells them parable after parable, just trying to get their brains to figure out where he is headed. He makes sure to tell us that no one knows when he will return. Not, not even himself. Only God knows. And so don't spend any time trying to figure that out. Whenever I read these texts, these parables that are about what's to happen at the end, there's something within me, the Holy Spirit, I believe, that always is like, pay attention. Pay attention, Emily. Because when you think about at the end, what, what, what really matters? What really is going to matter about how we live our life? I don't want to miss us. I don't want us to miss this. I think Jesus told these parables specifically for that reason, so that we can be reminded when we get caught up in life, what really is most important. So here now, this familiar text from Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. And then the king will pull the sheep at his right hand, and he will say, Come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that you, we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to eat, something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and invited you? And then the king will answer. Truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are two things that surfaced for me this time from this text. First is that being a Christ follower means that we must live to meet the needs of those that have less. It it cannot be separated. And second, when we do that, when we meet the needs of those that have less, we're actually doing something for Jesus. When I identify as a Christian, It doesn't mean that it's just my faith or my religion. It means that I am following Christ. And to follow Christ, if we look at how Christ lived all throughout the Gospels, it means we are intentionally seeking to meet the needs of others. Meeting the needs of people that have less, it matters to Jesus. And so it should matter to me. For those of us that like checklists, anybody like checklists and boxes to, okay, this parable might be one of those things that you get tempted. You're like, okay, I'm going to list out, feed hungry, thirsty, visit people in prison. And, and then like once you get to the bottom, you're like, yes, I am a good Christian. I've been elevated to Jesus's pat on the back list. 
That's not what's happening here because it's a parable. In parables, Jesus does these, he tells the parables so that he can draw the listener in, draw the listener in so you feel like that the story that's being told you could place yourself in. So it can't be read literally. And so when we see Jesus say, sheep from the goats, did any of you think, am I a sheep or am I a goat? You did it. He did it. He drew you in to the story. So in the story, the sheep are the ones that are on the right hand. They're the ones that get the kingdom. They're the ones that Jesus calls blessed. And they are blessed. They are blessed because they met the needs of the least of these. I have struggled with that word, that phrasing, the least of these. It makes me feel like if there are least, then there are people that are better. It feels like a tier system, like the least are down here, and then all of us who don't have to worry about hunger, thirst, clothing, we must be more than I went back and looked at the use and the original use of this word, and and it actually doesn't mean to be something demoralizing or shaming. The word there means someone who has the least of certain things, certain means. How would it feel to be called a least? You must be a least. How demoralizing and shaming. There's this incredible book that I'm not going to, use the poem. I'm not going to read the poem up on a screen because I want you to all go buy it. It's called, My Name is Child of God, Not Those People. And it's a story by Julia Dinsmore. It's a first-person book of her life and poetry as a impoverished woman living in the continual cycle of poverty and the labels that she has been assigned by different people. And this is what she writes. She says, my name is not those people. I am a loving woman, a mother in pain, giving birth to the future where my babies have the same chance to thrive as anyone. My name is not inadequate. I did not make my husband leave us. He chose to and chooses not to pay child support. Truth is, though, there isn't a job base for all fathers to support their families. While society turns its head, my children pay the price. My name is not problem and case to be managed. I'm a capable human being and citizen, not just a client. The social service system can never replace the compassion and concern of loving grandparents, aunts, uncles, fathers, cousins, community, all the bonded people who need to be but are no longer present for me. My name is not lazy, dependent, welfare mother. If the unwaged work of parenting, homemaking, and community building were factored into the gross domestic product, my work would have untold value. And why is it that mothers whose husbands support them to stay home and raise children are glorified, and why don't they get called lazy or dependent? This is my favorite part. My name is not ignorant, dumb, or uneducated. I got my PhD from the University of Life school of hard everything. I live with an income of $621 with $169 in food stamps for three kids. Rent is $585. That leaves $36 a month to live on. I am such a genius at surviving. I could balance the state budget in an hour. 
Never mind that there's a lack of living wage jobs. Never mind that it's impossible to be the sole emotional, social, spiritual, and economic support for a family. Never mind that parents are losing their children to gangs, drugs, stealing, prostitution, the poverty industry, social workers, kidnapping the streets, the predator. Forget about putting more money into our schools. Just build more prisons. My name is not lay down and die quietly. My love is powerful, and the urge to keep my children alive will never stop. All children need homes and people who love them. All children need safety and the chance to be the people they were born to be. The wind will stop before I allow my sons to become a statistic, before you give in to the urge to blame me, the blame that lets us go blind and unknowing into the isolation that disconnects your humanity from mine. Take another look. Don't go away, for I am not the problem but the solution, and my name is not those people. The word that's used here for least of these, it's not just those people. It's not just a category that we get to just shift people into. It's the, it's the people with the least. They're not identified as the least. It's the people with the least. These are the folks that have the least, as, least access These are folks with the least control, with the least power, with the least voice. It really should be translated differently. Just as you did it to the person with the least access to have their needs met, you did it to me, Jesus said. We are not told anything. We are not told one single thing about the moral character of the hungry, the thirsty, the imprisoned, the naked, and the lonely. We are not told if they are Christian or Jewish or Muslim. We are not told what their gender is or their marital status. We are only told of a need that they have. And this is what connects us, is that all of us as humans have needs, and the difficulty of real life is that not everybody gets the same access. Not everybody gets to have the same opportunities to have those needs met. As followers of Christ, this is a charge to us. It is our responsibility to seek out to meet the needs of the least. Would I commit more time to serving others that look different than me, that are in different status than me, if I thought it was actually serving Jesus? Do y'all remember that phrase, WWJD, was kind of a big deal 10, 15 years ago? Some people got tattoos of it. They all wore bracelets. It was this, there were notebooks. I mean, it was this craze, and it always bothered me. It, it bothered me for some reason. It was, what would Jesus do? It was a question that we were encouraged to ask before we made decisions or talked about something. And the ideology here is that we're supposed to act and speak like Jesus did. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not meaning to like cast shade on that whole movement. I think it did amazing work. But my concern with this is that it increases the risk of making me, making oneself the center of relationships. In our text, Jesus compares himself not to the person who is doing the feeding, 
not to the person who is doing the, the visiting in prison, not to the person who is caring for the sick. Oh, no, no, no. Jesus identifies with the one receiving it. Jesus in the story is the one to whom the least is needed. And this is so very important for us, friends. When was the last time that Emily fed a hungry person or welcomed a stranger or visited someone in prison that wasn't a friend, that wasn't a member of my congregation, that wasn't someone easier to meet the needs of? Who are the least right now around us? Who are the least around us? How can we feed, visit, and welcome them? All the things Jesus mentions, they are visible actions. Some of them are physical, which means it's our responsibility to make sure to to feed those that are without food, to house those that are without housing, to visit those without people to visit. That is our responsibility. But then there's this emotional need. What would our daily lives look like How would they be different if we were to see Christ in every person? Not consider ourselves Christ, but to see Christ in every person. This is stretching. This is going to be stretching to us. It's stretching to me big time. We are all so good, and I am really good. I have the gift of of feeding people, of hosting people, of welcoming people that are in my circle, that are just like me. Would we treat someone with the least any differently if suddenly we discovered that was actually Jesus out there? It's our responsibility to do so. May it be so in my life and in yours. Amen.